If you have your Bibles open, I want to read um, Genesis chapter 13. We'll read all of the chapter and, uh, and then we'll spend a bit of time um, looking at it. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the time, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and would you help us as we work our way through it, Father, that it will be an accurate explanation and even application of your word to our hearts and our lives in this day in which we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways, in fact, it's the way that I worked myself through this particular chapter after uh, sitting on it for a little while was choices. Every single day of our lives, we face countless choices. How do you choose? Do you know how you choose? Do you know what influences your choices? Do you know why you go left versus right? Or why you choose door number one over door number two? I don't know if you ever stopped to think about the, the, the way your choices um, come to be. Each of our choices, I am convinced, has a context. It's rooted in a belief. We may not see this at the time, but time will clearly reveal it if we can work our way back objectively from the choices we make. So stay with me as I sort of unpack this a little bit before we dive into the text. A couple of weeks ago, I outlined a verbal behavioral map for us. Simple map. 
It went something like this. What you believe will shape how you think. How you think will shape what you do. And what you do will dominate your life. So in the realm of choices, we might put it this way. What you believe will shape how you think. How you think will shape what you choose. What you choose will dominate your life. With that in mind, I, I want to just kind of really come out to the, like the, the 60,000 foot view of life and choices that we make. And I want to give you two sort of opposing belief systems that, that are a starting point for how we make decisions in life. These are two opposing belief systems which aren't balanced at all. As one person put regarding one of the belief systems, naturalism or scientific naturalism, thanks to the theory of evolution, naturalism is now the dominant religion of modern society. Naturalism has now replaced Christianity as the main religion of the Western world. And evolution has become naturalism's principal dogma. Another individual that I have been reading this week in a new book, um, Strange Rites, New Religions in a Godless Age, fascinating book, says this, that we are hurtling at top speed through a tunnel, headed straight for a blinding light, be it zenith or nadar, a world without God. Again, we're thinking about belief systems and how we make choices according to our beliefs. And so I, I give you sort of two real general broad um, belief systems. One is simply natural versus spiritual. Scientific naturalism versus the reality of God. The scientific naturalism or, or the view that is dominant in the world today is really a, a, a belief that um, all that you see is all that there is. That the physical world and physical matter is all that there is. The other belief is that there is a God and that God is real and that changes everything. And so those are two big belief systems that will generate your choices. The second is temporal versus eternal. This belief also has a profound impact on the choices that we make. We can think in terms of this world and the world to come, or this world is all that there is. We are either citizens of this world or we are citizens of heaven, as we sung just a little bit earlier. And we are only strangers and aliens passing through this world. That reality will have a profound impact on the choices that you make. I want to just draw this out a little bit more. I read a number of years ago a book by E.O. Wilson. He's written a number of books. He's a prolific writer. And he's a prolific writer on the side of scientific naturalism or the theory of evolution. And he writes this, he says, What does the story of our species tell us? By this I mean the narrative made visible by science. There it is, visible or physical. Not the archaic version soaked in religion and ideology. He goes on, I believe the evidence is massive enough and clear enough to tell us this much. We were not created by a supernatural intelligence, but by chance or necessity. There he's talking about origins. And then he says, as one species in Earth's biosphere. And there he's talking about a worldview, a closed system. We live in a biosphere. Then he goes on and he says, hope and wish for otherwise as we will. There is no evidence of an external grace shining down upon us. 
no demonstrable destiny of purpose assigned to us, no second life vouchsafed to us, or the for for the end of this present one. There he's talking about destiny. This world is all that there is. We are, it seems, completely alone. And that, in my opinion, is a very good thing. It means that we are completely free. That is a comment about morality. So if that is your belief system, that will impact, in a significant way, the choices that you make. Sam Harris wrote this, at some point, it's going to be too embarrassing to believe in God. On the other hand, we have a biblical belief system. What does the story of mankind tell us? By this I mean the narrative made clear through natural and special revelation, not scientific rhetoric soaked in philosophical assumptions. I believe the evidence is massive enough and clear enough, both internally and externally, to tell us this much. We have been created not by chance and necessity, but as a result of the divine deliberation of God, made in his image and likeness with intention and purpose. Hope and wish for otherwise, we will. But there is clear evidence of God's purposeful hand in creation generally and in my life specifically. There is demonstrable destiny and purpose assigned to us and that the external evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the internal witness in all mankind of a longing for something beyond this life points to a world to come. We are not alone. And this, in my opinion, is a very good thing. It means we are loved, cared for, and accountable for how we live. Two completely opposing worldviews. And nothing will have a greater impact on the choices that you make than understanding the beliefs that you hold. We can have a belief that is rooted in, in, in a very few words. In the beginning, God. God is real, we've been saying. That changes everything. Or... As the Bible says in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so when it comes to choices, the beliefs that you hold will influence how you think, and how you think will influence how you act. So Abraham now has come back from Egypt. It was not a very good trip. It was a dangerous trip for him. And physically and spiritually has come back to his point of departure in Bethel. The previous months had been really difficult on him. He'd been living in the land and, and a land that God had promised to him and then a famine had come over the land. And what did Abraham do? He left the land of promise to go to Egypt. And he ran into a world of hurt when he abandoned the promise of God. And so the first crisis that he faced in holding the promise of God was a famine in the land. We too hold promises of God dear to us, and those promises will be tested and challenged by various circumstances that come into our lives. Will we cling to those promises, or will we, like Abraham, go down to Egypt? Now he faced another crisis in the land. Apparently, it wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough room for both of the flocks of himself and Lot. The land seemed inadequate. Scripture tells us Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. 
What we find is that despite Abraham's poor choices, God had not given up on him. In fact, God had been generous to him in in considerable way to both he and his family, to himself and to Lot. They had so many possessions that it exposed a couple of devastating realities, potentially. If you read this through, you might just underline the word, or two words, the land. Because this is the land promise that is threatened again. And six times in these verses, the land is mentioned. And it seems like, from a human perspective, the promise of God to give them the land was now somewhat limited. It couldn't handle a famine, and now it can't handle just two families. They had too much. The land was too small, and there was strife. Maybe part of the reason that it seemed that the land was too small was, as the writer says, is the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. God had not yet displaced those peoples from the land that he was giving to Abraham as a possession. So the first choice that we have then here, and remember, beliefs determine choices and thinking and choices. The first choice is simply the land. There's this conflict. There's this strife. What are they going to do? It's amazing that magnanimously, Abraham, who had all the right in the world to make the first choice, turns to his nephew Lot and he says, you choose. I'd like, if I had the opportunity to time travel, I would love to time travel to maybe about two months um, after this decision that Abraham made with Lot. And I'd sit down with Abraham. I said, Abraham, what was going through your mind and your heart at this point of conflict with your nephew? And I wonder what it was that influenced his thinking as he, as he made this decision. I think he had learned at least this lesson, that God could be trusted. That the promise of God was something to cling to and hang on to. And no matter what would come his way, even a famine and now conflict would not take away the promise of God from him. And so while the strife was serious, it didn't have to tear the two families apart. And so as I reflected on the choice from the vantage point of the New Testament, which we have that vantage point, uh, there's a number of things that went through my head. And there's a specific phrase that Abraham used, I believe it's in um, verse 8, where he says, for we are kinsmen. Another translation would say, for we are brothers. We are relatives. And what I thought about was that the relationship for Abraham was the most important thing. The money that he had was secondary. The relationship was primary. Abraham had a choice, and he says, is it worth the relationship? I can put my foot down here, but is it worth the relationship? And I I was thinking about that in a number of places in the New Testament. When two Christians go together against one another with a lawsuit. And Paul says, you shouldn't do that kind of thing. You shouldn't do that as brothers in Christ. There shouldn't be lawsuits amongst you. He says about them, he says, it's already a total defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. Why not rather be put, uh, put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? He says, you have a choice. And what determines that choice? Well, God will supply all my needs. Even if somebody takes my shirt off my back in court, God will supply all of my needs. I will let him have what he wants. You have a choice. And then I thought about Philippians 2.2, where it says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Each one of you should look out not only for his own interests, but the interests of others. 
you have a choice. You don't have to stand on your rights. You don't have to fight only for your own interest. You have a choice. And then my mind went to Romans 8 or 12, 18. One of the many passages which call us to peace. And there Paul writes, he says, As much as possible and to the utmost of your ability, be at peace with everyone. You have a choice. And that, that choice is rooted in your belief system. It's rooted in how you understand God and what he wants for you and how he cares for you and how he guides you and how he directs you. So if I had this opportunity to sit down with Abraham and ask my question, I wonder if he might have answered something like this. You know, Paul, I was a little frustrated that we allowed the generosity of God to create such a tension between us. But the solution to that tension was a no-brainer to me. See, I knew that God was a God of his word. I knew that I could trust him to provide for my needs. I didn't any, want any more strife with my relative, my brother Lot. I valued our relationship too much for that. So it seemed that the best way forward to me was to let Lot choose. Because I knew God would look after me. Loved ones, when relational strife hits you, you have a choice. What beliefs will determine your thinking? What view of marriage will determine your thinking? What view of peace will determine your thinking? What view of self-rights or personal rights will determine your thinking? How will that thinking then display in your actions? How will those actions then dominate your day or your week or your life? Abraham said to Lot, you choose. Come to the second choice. This is a devastating choice. Because we see that Lot chose with his natural eyesight. I think the life of Lot should be mandatory study for every new believer, young and old. Because it's a story of bad choices, one after the other. Remember how Abraham retraced his steps back to the point of departure in, in, in uh, Genesis 13, 1-4. He comes back to the place that he had left God. Well, I was thinking here about Lot, and I think Lot and his life, this was a critical choice that he made, which determined the direction of his life for years and years and years to come. And if he could retrace his steps all the way back to this choice, I suspect he would have cho chosen differently. It says very clearly that after Abraham gave him the choice, that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was sweet. He saw all the advantages of the cities of the plain, but not the dangers. It says that the men of Sodom were wicked. He saw all the perks of this land, physically all the perks, but he saw none of the moral perils that were associated with the decision that he was making. He was simply making a decision based on naturalism or what his eyes could see. It all began with his physical sight. He, he, he made this decision looking out amongst the plagues. He lifted up his eyes. He saw, he chose. Three verbs there. The language of these verses convinces me that he moved outside of the land of promise. See, Abraham said, look left or right. They were probably facing east. Lot did neither. He looked east and he left the land of promise. Because verse 12 tells us that Abraham settled in the land of Canaan very specifically. 
But Lot settled in the Jordan Valley amongst the cities of the plains. I am convinced that Lot walked away from the promises of God. And he left the land of promise for this beautiful land of the plains. He was presented with a choice. See, the language of the test is instructive. Abraham says to Lot, isn't the whole land before you? He knew that meant the land of Canaan. Isn't the whole land before you? If, if you go north, I'll go south. If you go south, I'll go north. He had a choice. Rather, he looked straight ahead and left the land of promise. See, God always gives us boundaries within which to make choices. But so often, we're not happy with the boundaries that God sets for us in our choices. So we look beyond the promises of God. We look beyond the boundaries of God. We look beyond the word of God, and we choose what's not on the plate. We compromise, and we push the boundaries, and we see with our natural eyes, not with the eyes of faith. Notice that Lot sees what he sees. He, he sees a well, or a place well watered like the Lord's garden Eden. That for me was fascinating. Because that hints to me that Eden was close enough in their memory that he could say, yeah, that land's like Eden. Eden was part of their discussions. Eden was part of their stories around the fires at night. It wasn't something that happened millions and millions and millions of years ago. It was something that happened hundreds of years earlier. And they, they had a reference point. They said, that land, it's like the land of Eden. And then he also said, it's also like the land of Egypt. Egypt was known as the breadbasket of the ancient Near East. And I think we are meant to go back in Genesis and think of a couple instances. One of them is in Genesis 3.6 when Eve was tempted. Remember, she was told, you can eat of all the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but of this one tree, don't eat it. And what do we see in Genesis 3, 6? So when the woman saw, when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired more, more uh, uh, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. She only saw with physical eyes. She completely abandoned the spiritual realities. We go a little bit farther. You only have to go to Genesis chapter 6-2. I know it's a complicated and a difficult passage, but it says there, the, Lord, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they went and took them as wives, and that was one of the, the culminating realities of why God destroyed the earth with a flood. Some of you might remember the story of Achan. It's after this account, but it's in, in the book of Joshua. And finally, the, the Israelites had been defeated in battle, and they found out why they had been defeated and, and who was responsible. And so Joshua comes to Achan and says, Achan, tell me, tell me, what happened? And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, see, there it is, the eyes. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. See, Lot was seeing the cities of the plain not through the eyes of faith. He was seeing the cities of the plain not through the eyes of an alien or a stranger just passing through. 
We know this. In verse 10, it's ominous. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that something's happening there. And note verse 13, the reality here. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. If you've been part of this church for more than a few years, a few times I've talked about the progression of Lot. You ought to, you ought to note it just in your head. You, you ought to remind yourself of it in your own life. Notice verse 13, 12. It says, he lived in the cities of the valley and he set up his tent near Sodom. Getting pretty close. And then you come to verse, chapter 14, verse 12. And then we read, Lot was living in Sodom. And then you come to verse 19.1, and you find that Lot is now sitting in Sodom's gate. There is a progression of compromise in his decisions. One choice after the other that now has him in the very heart of Sodom itself. And we will see when we come to Genesis 19, how faith and spirituality had so eroded in Lot's life and home. The edges of sin are as dangerous as the heart of sin. Satan is a master debater who craftily convinces us that the world is not such a dangerous place. How easily and dangerously we turn our back on the promises of God to pursue things that have caught our eyes. I would have loved to have sit down with Lot. If I could go back in my time machine now and jump in it and, and say, I want to go back to, I don't know, I can't remember the time, around 2000. BC and he said, I want to go see Lot. I would have said to Lot, Lot, what were you thinking? What were you thinking when you chose the cities of the plain? Had you given up confidence in God? Had you lost your faith in the promises of God? Did the word of God mean nothing to you? Did you not see the spiritual realities that were flashing like neon lights from the cities of the plain before your eyes? One of the best questions we might ask ourselves when we make choices is what am I not seeing? Loved ones, when God's word lays a path before you, you have a choice. What beliefs about God and his word will determine your thinking? What thinking will flow from those beliefs? And what actions then will dominate your coming and your going as a result of that thinking? I implore you, think this through. Choose wisely. Stay within the boundaries of God's word and God's promises. And thirdly, Abraham chose Abraham chose with the eyes of faith. See, the eyes of faith understand that things are not as they seem, or better yet, things are not only as they seem. There's a whole bunch going on behind the physical realities that you and I live in uh, every moment of our lives. I love this, that God directed Abraham's eyes, and, and he looked with the eyes of faith. He looked with eyes bounded, boundaried by the word of God and the promises of God. Abraham accepted and took God at his word. And God says to him, now, look from the place where you are. Look north, south, east, west, for I will give you all the land that you see. And Abraham believed God, and he lifted up his eyes. But Abraham's lifting up his eyes was different than Lot's lifting up his eyes. You see, Abraham looked as one looking beyond this life to the next. He looked beyond this world to the next. Hebrews 11 is a, a book about spiritual eyesight. Men and women who lifted up their eyes and, and saw life through the lens of uh, re the reality of God and the temporal, temporalness of the world and the certainty of the world to come. It says in verse 13, these all died, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar, 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. The writer continues in Hebrews, for people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared them for a city. I don't think, in, as Abraham went walking with God, I, I think he even saw that the promise of God was more than the physical land of Israel. He understood that the fulfillment of the promise of God was to come in a new heaven and a new earth. That's how far his eyesight stretched. That's how far his confidence and belief in God stretched. So far that he determined his immediate decisions there in Canaan. Let me quickly take you through spiritual eyesight of Abraham. First, in verses 13, 8 to 9, simply he rested in the providence of God. We've talked about providence a lot here, but Abraham rested in the province of God. You see, Abraham could leave the choice up to Lot because he knew God would do him well. He knew God would guide him. He knew God would direct him. He knew that, that he could rest in the promise of God, that God would lead him. God would provide for him. God would protect him. Do you rest in the providence of God? Do you know that God knows the very numbers of the hairs of your head? He knows what you do. He knows where you live. He knows all the forces that are exerting themselves against you. Rest in the providence of God. Trust God to lead you and guide you and care for you and provide for you. Secondly, he trusted in the promises of God. Notice verses 14 to 16. We don't have time to reread them. But God reiterates his promises to Abraham. Notice what he says. I will give to you forever the land that you see. I will give it to you. Don't be afraid to rehearse the promises of God in your heart and mind. Don't give up on the promises of God. Rehearse them. Go over them. Um, remind yourselves of them. When you're hanging on to a promises, don't let go of it. Don't be afraid to bring it back up to God and say, God, but you promised. God, but your word says. God, I believe. God, I'm hanging on to this. Listen to him when he reminds you of his promise. Second, there's the people of promise. We've been talking about this. God says, I will give you descendants. Notice what he says, I will give to you and your offspring. There's that reminder. It's as of yet, Abraham had no offspring. But he says, I will give to you and your offspring. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Can you figure that one out? Like the dust of the earth. And if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Uh, you know, if there was a, a, a Christian version of Charlotte's Web, I think I would love to wake up one morning and read, woven into the web, some promise. These are the promises of God. Then notice verse 17. He tasted the goodness of God. And, and we know this. We, we read in Psalms, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, how do you know that he tasted some of the goodness of God? Well, he says to him in verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. That's like just a hint. That's just like a, a little taste. That's like God saying, Abraham, I've got this massive promise for you, and it's, it's going to extend over uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But just so you understand it and believe it, let's go for a walk, and I'll give you a little taste of what's to come. And finally, he worshipped the living God. You see a habit forming in Abraham's life here? 
we ended in uh, verse 4 when he had come back to the land where he worshipped the Lord again. And now we come to verse 18 and we find there that he built an altar to the Lord. And it's, we just know what he did there. He sacrificed and he worshipped. He called upon the name of the Lord. I really miss not being able to worship corporately together. But that doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't worship all the rest of the hours of all the rest of the days of the week. I think this is characteristic of Abraham's life. He just worshiped the Lord. I wonder what his worship looked like and sounded like. He probably made a sacrifice, but then he called out to the Lord and he talked to the Lord and he talked to God and he said, God, you're so good to me. God, I don't deserve your promises. God, thank you for carrying me. Thank you for providing me. God, would you look after my, my nephew Lot? He's made an awful decision. Would you, would you care for him? Would you guide him, Father? And I don't know when you're going to increase my descendants, Father, but I trust you. I believe in your word. And I know if you say it, it will come to pass. And he worshiped the Lord. May God drive us into deeper, regular public worship. So, loved ones, when God's word lays a path before you, you have a choice. What beliefs about God and his word will determine your thinking? What thinking will flow from those beliefs? How will those beliefs shape your thought patterns? And what actions will dominate your coming and your going in the next few weeks and months? Abraham looked through the eyes of faith. His gaze was filtered through the lens of the promises of God and the words of God. And so I implore us again this morning, choose wisely. Stay within the boundaries of God's word and God's promise. I only have a couple minutes. Well, I probably have longer, but I only have a couple minutes. The ultimate choice. I was thinking this through. What do you see when you see Christ? What do you see? You can weave through the gospel accounts and you can see individual after individual who only saw a man. They looked at him and they said, he's just a man. We know his father and mother. He's just a human being. He's just got flesh and blood. He's, 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 he's maybe a good guy and he's got good words to say, but he's just a man. And if that's your conclusion, if that's your belief, that will influence your thinking it will influence your choices, unfortunately, even into eternity. But what about when, when God comes to you and you read the scriptures and the Spirit of God begins to speak to you and you, you say, that's not what a normal man does. That's not how a normal man talks. That's not the, the, a normal man doesn't have that power, that ability. And we read that Christ was eternal, that he was equal with God, that he lived in eternity um, past with God. And we come to the conclusion with eyes of faith that this Jesus is not just or not only flesh and blood. But he's the son of God. The savior of the world. And that changes everything. Because then you realize that I need to put my trust in him. I need to put my faith in him. I need to rest my life upon his acts and his righteousness. I need to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. Because I know you're the son of God. I know that you have come to die for me, to take my sins away, and to give me your righteousness, and to give me eternal life. And I can see this now. And we read in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4, how the God of this world has blinded the eyes of so many people that they don't see him as Christ. And if you don't see him as Christ yet this morning, plead with God, say, God, would you open my eyes? Jesus, talking to his disciples, he said to them one day, who do the people say that I am? And they gave him a bunch of answers. And he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are you because the Father has opened your eyes to see that. Oh, plead with God to give you spiritual sight, to see who Jesus is so that you too can experience the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. You have a choice. Father, we come to you this morning. We're thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the life of Abraham and the way it has instructed me in choosing and what goes on in the background of my choices. Father, you know what we're confronted with today. As we're making decisions, Father, as we're faced with choices this week, would you help us to back those up a little bit and say, okay, what kind of thinking is, is why am I thinking this way? And how is that thinking influencing my choices? And then what about my belief? What am I thinking about God and his word and his world? Is, is this, does this make sense? Does it flow out of that belief? Father, would you teach us? Would you confirm in us that you are real? And help us to realize then how that changes everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.